Welcome to the I Matter podcast, future-proof your business, career, teams, and organization. Here's your host, Gahan Pereira. Welcome to the I Matter podcast. Let me start with a story that goes back, well, it goes back 150 years. So we go all the way back to 1868 in Milwaukee, and a newspaper editor and printer, Christopher Latham Scholes, he had a problem because he created a writing machine, which he called a typewriter, and the idea was it was for individual operators to print words on paper. Now, he wasn't the first person to create such a device. Henry Mill had got a British patent for it for as far back as 1714, but Scholes's typewriter was the first one to be commercially successful, and he initially marketed it as a device for secretaries to transcribe dictation for their bosses. And many women mastered that skill of typing, as as it was called, because it was one of the few respectable jobs that was available to women at that time, particularly unmarried women. And it was very successful. In fact, it was so successful that Scholes had a problem because his original typewriter keyboard had all the keys laid out in alphabetical order because that was the most logical thing to do. But that caused a problem because there were some typists who were so fast that they made the moving parts of the typewriter move so fast that they kept jamming. And when keys next to each other were pressed too quickly, the typewriter jammed, and so it caused delays. And Scholes struggled with this problem for five years, trying different mechanical improvements to the typewriter and different layouts to the keyboard. And in 1873, when he sold the commercial rights of, for his typewriter to the Remington Company, he'd settled on the keyboard that we now use today. It's a QWERTY layout, Q-W-E-R-T-Y, which is the first six letters of the top row. And that's what we know now uh, with our computers, mobile phones and tablets. And the genius of the QWERTY layout was that it was designed so that common pairs of letters, which are normally typed one after each other, were spaced further apart. So that means that it reduces the risk of jamming the typewriter. But it had some disadvantages as well. So it took a little bit of getting used to because it wasn't alphabetical. And actually it also heavily favours left-handers because the most common keys are on the left-hand side of the keyboard. And since that time, different people have proposed various alternatives to the QWERTY layout. But up until today, none of them have taken hold. And even though... Christopher Scholes' original problem has long been obsolete because we don't have typewriters with jamming keys anymore. His solution, the QWERTY layout, has still remained, even though there's no longer a convincing need for it. So why is that? Because there's no convincing need to change it either, and that's why it's remained the status quo. In the last few years, mobile phones and tablet computers have introduced new technologies such as tapping icons on a screen, and that's far easier than typing, and we can see that people are happy to adopt that. And so typing, even though it remains important, and the QWERTY keyboard layout survives even until today, it's not the only option available. So here's the point behind this story. There are many other things that we're doing now simply because we've always done it that way. And in this episode, we're going to look at one of those things, telecommuting. In other words, people in your team who are working from home. Now, you might already allow that in your organization, and maybe some of your own team members are already working from home. But if this isn't happening and people are asking for it, then perhaps you should consider it. See, the Industrial Revolution in the 18th and 19th century created the need for workers to come to offices every day to work. Because until recently, many office workers had no choice except to go to work in an office because that's where they could find the files and the telephones and the secretarial pool and even their colleagues. But now, working in an office might still be convenient and efficient, but it's often no longer necessary. It might still be something that you want to do, but it's not something that you have to do because we've got access to files over the internet, we've got phones in our pockets, you can email documents for secretarial assistance, and you can meet colleagues remotely. 
Like the QWERTY keyboard, there are now feasible alternatives and compelling reasons to change, and millions of office-bound workers have changed their work style, so they're not forced to work in an office every day from Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. And they do this for convenience, comfort and freedom, and they can be just as productive, and the organization can be just as profitable. But also, like the QWERTY keyboard, there are a lot of organizations and teams that are still working from an office because that's the way it's always been done, and they can't really see a compelling need need to change. And in this episode, I have a conversation with my friend Chris Padney about this, about telecommuting and working from home. Now, Chris and I wrote the book Out of Office, which is all about working from outside the traditional office. It includes things like telecommuting. And you can get the book, you can listen to our podcast or read our blog at outofofficebook.com. And in this conversation, we talk about some of the obstacles that you see and some of the objections you hear about allowing people to work from home. So to give you a brief overview of the things that we talk about, we look at productivity, collaboration, communication, culture, innovation, trust, and security. So we look at the pros and cons, and we look at the arguments that are often put forward for not allowing telecommuting, and why we think that telecommuting, working from home, is something that you should seriously consider for your team members. It's interesting. So at the end of last year, ACMA, which is the Australian Communications and Media Authority, they surveyed workers in Australia and they found that 51% of employed Australians are what they call digital workers, so people who use the internet to work remotely, and some 80% of them are working from home. So that's... I was knocked over by those numbers. That's a huge amount of people who are working out of office. Mm. So it's, it's big and it's getting bigger. But nevertheless, there's still some resistance in organisations to having out-of-office work. So what we're going to do today is look at some of the most common objections to out-of-office work and address those. And obviously, we're biased. We've got probably 30 years of -of out-of-office work experience between us, and we advocate strongly for it. So we've got the book, we've got our blog and our podcast. But we'll look at these these arguments. We recognise there's there's a core of legitimacy to them. Um, but then we'll also present some counter arguments. And the idea here, the motivation, is to help you make a more informed decision about deciding whether to allow your team members to work out of office. Yep. Okay. So let's look at the first one. The first one, probably the first objection that comes up by by leaders and managers when somebody asks to work out of office is the idea of productivity. And uh, people say, you know, we can't let people work from home because they're they're going to be too distracted. There's going to be too many interruptions. They're going to be slacking off if we're not watching them as a manager. Uh, They're not going to work long enough hours and just things like that. And that always seems to be an argument that uh, if you're not watching them, uh, uh, they'll get up to mischief or they'll find themselves in mischief just because of other things going on around them. Yeah, yeah, hun. And so I don't know about you, but often when I tell people that I work out of office and I tell people who, who work in a standard office environment, they say, oh, I could never do that. I could never work from home. I'd be distracted by the telly or the internet or doing chores, gardening and so on and so forth. Um, so I think it's for people who don't work out of office, there's this misconception that out of office workers are slackers. But in fact, the... Uh, the reality and the research is backed by research and uh, and data shows that the opposite is actually the case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the research shows that out-of-office workers are more productive, and I guess that's, if you say the proof, the pudding's in the eating, that's what it is. Uh, they might, you know, out-of-office workers might work odd hours, and sometimes they do take uh, long times out for lunch, and uh, they might get interrupted by crying babies and ringing doorbells, and uh, I know there are times when I've like taken half a day off because I want to go and meet a friend at the airport, and then we'll spend the rest of the time uh, just 
catching up rather than working, but I'll make up the time at other times. Uh, and it comes down to who cares? As long as they get the work done and they achieve their objectives and the research proves that they do, then it doesn't really matter at what level they work or what hours they work as long as they get the work done. Yeah, and and in fact, it's it's not just that um, out of office workers are more productive. They're not slacking off. In fact, the opposite is true. In many cases, um, because out of office workers have their workplace at their fingertips, so to speak, they've got their tablets and their smartphones, or they've got their home office. Their workplace is really amenable and accessible to them, and there's this tendency to actually overwork and work too hard. So something that out-of-office workers, in fact, need to do is set clear boundaries between their working life and their personal life so that they don't overwork. Exactly, and as a leader and manager, I think the, the bigger issue is not whether they're not working hard enough, but making sure that they don't get burnt out because they're working too hard. Exactly, exactly. So that's productivity gear, huh? So um out-of-office workers, if they're working alone, they're, they're certainly more productive. The data backs that up. But what about when it comes to teamwork and communication and collaboration? So there's this argument that says it's much harder to communicate and collaborate with out-of-office workers compared with workers who are in the office. So if you've got your workforce in an office, then they can have informal chats around the water cooler or when they bump into each other in the corridor or the canteen or they can just uh, nip into someone's office or their cubicle and um, ask them a question. Or in a more formal context, if you need to get your team together, you can uh, round them all up, grab a meeting room and discuss what you want to discuss just like that. It's really easy because all of your workers are, are nearby and side by side. They're so much more accessible. And when it comes to collaboration, when you've got all your workers, again, working together in an office, sharing an environment, they can collaborate just more spontaneously and more easily than if your workforce is distributed across the globe and your, your workers are out of office. It's absolutely true that you can't grab people from all around the world and bring them into an office for a quick meeting, but it doesn't necessarily mean that communication is hard or collaboration is less effective. It just means that you might need to use different tools, and there's some very good tools now, uh, online meeting tools, video conference tools, even some of the text-based tools like wikis and blogs where people can collaborate, people can work together without having to be physically in the same office. And particularly, I think one of the biggest improvements recently is the quality of high-definition video. So you can have a really good, high-quality, high-definition video conference with people all around the world without having to spend a lot of money and with the same sort of fidelity that you would get if you're in a meeting room, at least the same sort of quality of conversation, interaction and collaboration that you would get in a meeting room. And some of the other tools like online uh, mind maps and online uh, wikis, for example, allow people to collaborate without having to be there all at the same time. So people can share information. Somebody else will come along and add another idea, add another, uh, add another comment. And in that way, you build up this store of knowledge and this, this discussion that doesn't require people to be there all at the same time anyway, and it gets recorded easily and available to everybody. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Kihan. And the, the other thing is that the, the argument is correct in that it's, it's much easier to communicate and collaborate with people who are working side by side, but that comes with the downside in so much as people who are working, they get interrupted by people knocking on their door or mm. nipping into their office to ask mm. a question. Or the ease, the ease with which you can draw people into a meeting room has a downside in that 
there's this tendency to just have far too many time-wasting meetings. So all that, that those benefits do come with a cost to productivity. Whereas if you've got your team distributed and, and working remotely, um, that cost is diminished by the fact that you've got to actually apply some thought to when and how you communicate with your team members. You've got to think about well, what's the right channel to be using to communicate with, with my team member. And, you know, do I actually need to interrupt them? Do I need to have a meeting at this point of time? So the fact that you're, you've got to give a bit more thought to how you communicate and collaborate reduces that productivity cost when you just willy-nilly form, have meetings or interrupt people without much thought. Yep, exactly right. Okay, so we looked at productivity and we looked at collaboration and uh, good leaders and managers would also care a lot about the culture of their team and the organization. And there, there is an argument that it's, it's quite difficult to instill an organization's culture, which includes things like their mission and their values and the way we do things in out-of-office workers because um, the argument goes that in-office workers are usually, because they're in the same place at the same time, it, it's so much easier to create the culture because people are just hanging around with each other all the time. So the culture just happens automatically and it's, it's much easier than when your workers are distributed across different time zones and uh, even different ethnic cultures and there are those sort of differences that you have to take into account. It's much harder to build an organization or a team culture. Yeah, you're right. It, it, it is much harder but it needs to become part of your communication with your distributed team and it's not like it's something that's excessively difficult or expensive. It's really just a part of good communication and good management. So you just make sure that you intentionally include some of those cultural messages um, as part of your regular communication with your team that you have these touch points on a regular basis when you're getting in contact with uh, with your remote workers. So it, it, it can be more. It is more difficult, certainly, than when you have people together in a workplace. But it's not like it's uh, an extremely high cost or difficult thing to do. And the other thing to consider is that the, the, the culture is not just a one-way street. It's not something that an organisation pushes at its employees. It's something that comes from their employees as well. So if you have remote workers, then you've got a, a really important resource there in that it's not just the people who live around where your head office is. It's people scattered across the globe potentially. So you've got much greater reach with uh, with your cultural messages and you've got, you're drawing from a much broader pool of people uh, of, of experiences and people's resources um, um, in, in developing that culture. So I think you have to consider um, that aspect as well. And I think you're, you, yeah, a particular case in point, aren't you, Chris? You're part of an international organization, and that organization is lucky that they have international workers because as they expand and they become a global organization, they have the benefit of people from different cultures. Absolutely, that's right. Okay, and I think the other really important thing to consider, especially if you're a leader or manager, is just to just question that assumption. You can't just build a culture by um, just assuming that it's going to happen automatically. It, it really requires more than just people being in the same place. If you really care about uh, building a culture, spreading your mission, like really sharing your values, it really requires a lot more than just having people in the same room or in the same office. So um, culture is important. It's very important in an organization. But the fact that people are in the same room or not, is only a small part of building a strong culture. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Gihan, so um, productivity, collaboration, communication and culture aren't necessarily a problem, but how about innovation? Hmm. So some iconic companies like Yahoo and Best Buy and uh, Hewlett-Packard have all had a go at out-of-office and they've rejected it on the grounds that uh, it, it 
presents a barrier or makes innovation difficult. So um, Marissa Mayer, who when she took the helm at Yahoo last year or the year before, one of her first actions was that she cancelled out-of-office working arrangements requiring all of the staff to come into the office for work. And it was motivated by the need to foster and drive innovation at Yahoo. I think they were facing fairly dire financial circumstances at the time. And Mayer was fairly quiet on it for some time, but eventually when she uh, was interviewed and opened up about it, she, she admitted that, yes, people are more productive when they're alone, but she also went on to say they're more collaborative and innovative when they're together. Some of the best ideas come from pulling two different ideas together. So, you know, she was really focused on innovation. She'd come across from Google uh, where they were quite obsessive about it. And Google and Apple, they, they don't have uh, remote workers or out-of-office work. What they've done instead in order to foster innovation is they've engineered these vast campuses that have fantastic perks like on-site gyms and creches. They've got these canteens which offer free, healthy meals. Uh, and, and in some cases, you can even live on campus if you're that dedicated to your work. <laughs> with the idea, with the idea, the driving idea behind this is that you bring all these people together from disparate domains and experiences and, um, and understanding. They, they mix and they share ideas and from that, hopefully, they innovate. So it's really important to these companies that they have everyone together on their campuses sharing ideas and driving innovation and that out-of-office work is seen as a barrier to that kind of, that kind of work. I think the first thing we should say when we talk about some of the, the, the flip side of the coin is to say that most businesses are not Google or Apple, that they're outliers and you shouldn't automatically follow any of their business practices out of office work or anything. I mean, they're often put forward as uh, these are the leaders and these are the, the most valuable companies in the world. Therefore, you should follow them. But that's not necessarily true. Uh, they really are outliers and not necessarily um, really good role models for you. Um, and the other thing, and, and as you, as you mentioned, Chris, that these organizations um, put a put a lot of work into making that in-office environment as attractive as possible for their in-office workers. So I reckon if you're going to say, okay, we should not allow out-of-office work because um, Google and Apple don't allow it, then you also need to take responsibility for saying, okay, well, are we also going to allow creches and uh, gyms and uh, free or uh, healthy food in our canteens? Are we going to allow all those other things that Google and Apple do to make their in-office work as attractive as as they do? And, And if you're not going to do that, then it's not really a valid comparison it's not, not a valid argument to say, well, we're not going to allow out-of-office work because Google and Apple don't allow it. Yeah, yeah. Just following on from this idea that not all companies are icons like Apple and Google, not, your business might not face um, um, an innovate-or-die kind of prospect. Innovation might not be a prime directive for your company. Things like productivity or creativity and agility might be more important to your business. Um, and in that case... These are things where there's evidence that out-of-office work, out work benefits those kinds of things. The jury is still out on whether bringing people together face-to-face, belly-to-belly, is um, a spur for innovation compared with people who are working remotely. Face-to-face interaction might make it easier to foster innovation, but it doesn't. out-of-office work doesn't make it impossible to innovate. And there are clever ways to spur innovation amongst a distributed workforce. And, and let's not forget that Google and, and Yahoo and, and um, Apple, these are global companies. They have campuses and workers across the world. So to some extent, they've got to, they do have remote workers and a distributed workforce. So there are lots of clever tools that you can make use of um, uh, as a way of uh, spurring innovation and creativity amongst your 
workforce. You just have to think a bit more cleverly and do things intentionally uh, to involve and get your, your remote and distributed workforce to innovate. Yeah, exactly. And to that point, Chris, there are there's so many examples of software, for example, like open source software, which is much better because of innovations from people around the world um, than software created by a company. I mean, if you look at things like uh, the Firefox web browser, which is an open source browser compared to um, either Safari from Apple or Internet, Ex- uh, Internet Explorer from Microsoft, um, you know, the open source software tends to be better simply because it's had input from people around the world. And these aren't people who are working in offices. They're very much out of office workers, if you like, who are, who are collaborating. Or you look at Wikipedia compared to something like the Encyclopedia Britannica is as good, if not better in some mm. cases. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and the last point we'll make about innovation is that just because in-office work works for Google and Apple or Yahoo or HP or Best Buy doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you should follow the same lead. And we've made that point before, but uh, I've heard somebody say the plural of anecdote is not data. So just because you have a lot of anecdotes, a lot of examples, doesn't necessarily mean that that proves a point. And it doesn't matter if you're in the minority. If it's right for you, if out-of-office work is right for you, uh, do it, especially if you can find a way to innovate within that. Okay. Okay, so the next one is trust. And, and we touched on this before. We touched on this uh, earlier where we said that maybe managers and leaders feel that they can't trust their out-of-office workers if they're not watching over them all the time. But it's also trust within the team. So team members don't necessarily trust their distributed and uh, virtual workers the, the same way because they might say, you know, I don't know where the kids go to school. I don't know what, what footy team they support or even if they know what footy is because they may be people from all around the world. Um, and so team members might find it a little bit more challenging to build trust with their distributed workers. Yeah, so the first counter-argument to trust within a team, Gihan, is that when your team is distributed and they don't work side-by-side, face-to-face, is that you can build trust through other mechanisms, primarily by working together. You get to know about the professional integrity of the other people that you're working with. So how well do they deliver on the promises that they make? How well do they um, deliver to particular timelines? Can you rely on them to respond with a partic- within a particular amount of time? So it's working together as opposed to uh, sort of living together or being physically at work together. It's, it's through working together in a distributed team that you get to know about the integrity of the other people that you're working with and that's the way that you build trust. And that's probably a higher quality form of trust than, well, you happen to know some of the personal details of other people's lives. And I think the same principle or the same idea uh, carries across to managers and leaders as well, Chris, that like as a manager or leader, you don't necessarily see your out-of-office team members every day and every hour of the day. But what you do is you manage the outcomes, you manage the results that they achieve rather than whether they turn up early in the morning and don't leave uh, don't leave at three o'clock in the, every afternoon. Those are sort of cues that you look for. You look for what they say they will do and what they actually deliver on. So exactly the sort of things that you talked about that your um, that your colleagues are looking for from you as an out of office worker, your manager and leader should be looking for as well. And you should be judged on that. Your performance should be based on the the outcomes that you achieve, and um, not based on what hours you put in or when those hours are during the day. Yeah. So let's talk about security. So this is something that bothers information-based organizations somewhat. And the argument is that 
out-of-office workers pose a bit of a security risk because they're accessing your business-sensitive information from outside of the office. So there are all these costs involved in ensuring that you put in place the infrastructure, so the policies, processes and tools that will support secure remote access for your out-of-office workers. And it's really important, obviously, you should be making sure that any remote access of uh, your business-sensitive information is done securely. And in fact, some businesses and organisations might be legally obliged to make absolutely sure that the data that they that they hold on behalf of their customers and clients is stored and accessed secure, securely. So yes, there's certainly a cost involved in supporting your out-of-office workforce so that they can securely access the information and resources that they need. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting argument, Chris, because like the, all the other things we've talked about, like trust and collaboration and innovation, productivity, they're all kind of like the soft skills. They're the sort of thing that they're people skills. And it's almost like this is the fallback position that if all of those things you can't talk, you can't argue about, then it goes out back to, oh, well, no, we can't allow this because there'll be security problems. Uh, and it's almost like an excuse. I mean, the, as we said at the start, all of the things we're discussing are legitimate reasons. But really, there's no excuse uh, for for using this as the only argument to stop to stop your um, workers from choosing to work out of office and for for allowing that because and a couple of reasons for that. So one is that there's so many organisations that already have a mobile workforce. There are people who are out on the road. There are people who like daily, like salespeople. There are people who have to travel for business and they they need access to data. Um, so they already have to uh, address some of these security issues. And so some of that infrastructure is probably already in place, even though it may not be in place at the same level as a, let's say, a full-time out-of-office worker, like what we call an e-worker or even a part-time, uh, what we call a semi-commuter. So some of that's already in place and um, IT maybe has to do a little bit of extra work to put that in place permanently, but it's not a huge amount of work. And and the other thing is that so many people are now uh, bringing tablets and phones and lap- their own personal laptops into work and want to use those devices, uh, which we call BYOD or bring your own device. And the organizations already have to handle that. So it's not a big extra step to allow people to work out of office full-time or part-time. It does require a little bit of work, but it shouldn't really be an excuse. Yeah, yeah. so you're right. It's it's probably already in place, Kihan, but even if it's not, the, the cost argument does go away to some extent in so much as if you put those shared resources that your out-of-office workers need to access, if you put them into the cloud, then you can essentially outsource that, that, that security, that IT problem. You should be using the cloud anyway. It's a really fantastic way to collaborate with your out-of-office workers. But you get that security for free because the cloud service providers, they have to demonstrate that they've got um, secure, that, that, that your information and data that's held in the cloud is secure. Um, so you can outsource that problem to the cloud, uh, to, to cloud service providers, and the cost is particularly low. And in many cases, many of these cloud services are completely free. It's much cheaper than having to set up all this infrastructure on your own. So set up VPNs and firewalls and have an IT department with security specialists in it. If you just transfer that problem, outsource that problem to cloud service providers. Yeah, and I guess we, we don't want to minimize the size of this issue here because sometimes for some organization it can be a significant issue. Um, there's a friend of mine who works for an organization, which I won't name, <laughs> but, she, but she says that in her organization they are using such old technology that she can't access her emails on her phone. They have distributed offices, but 
people can't communicate with each other across the offices because their network isn't set up that way. So they're always sending, um, making phone calls and sending text messages. Um, they don't have shared calendars. So uh, there are organizations with some of that old technology. And if that's the case, it may be a significant effort to allow out-of-office work. But for most organizations, it probably isn't as big an issue as you think it is or maybe as big an issue as the IT department says it is. Indeed. Okay, Gihan, well, let's conclude with one final argument, and it goes like this. So I accept everything you've said. You've you've demolished all my arguments. <laughs> but in each case, it generally takes some time, money, or a completely different mindset to overcome the, the barriers. So in reality, it's much easier simply not to do any of that stuff and just keep uh, using traditional in-office workforce. Yeah, look, and, look, and that's true. It is hard. We're not saying that it's easy, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It's just like anything else that's new. It's like saying, okay, well, it's so much harder to change to, to upgrade our software, or it's so much harder to allow people to take responsibility for their work. Oh, why don't I just keep telling them what to do and hope they'll do it? Um, all of these things um, do take a little bit of effort, and there are obstacles, but we hope that what we've shown you is that none of them are none of them should be seen as deal breakers and just because it's hard doesn't mean that you should automatically reject it out of hand yeah that's right so instead you can now weigh up the pros and cons and make an informed decision I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope you found something valuable for your personal and professional life. And if you did get some value from it, I'd love it if you could do me a favor and give me a review and a rating in the iTunes store. And that helps to promote it to other people as well. And if you want me to share ideas like this live at your next conference, I'd love to do that. love to talk to you about that. Check out my speaking topics at gihanperera.com. And while you're there, you can also find out about my mentoring program for yourself or for your teams. And I also run a membership site for leaders to help with creating an online footprint, for marketing your business, for getting things done in a chaotic world, and for delivering more magnetic messages. And you can find out more about that at gihanperera.com as well. And if you want to engage with me in other ways, again, go to gihanperera.com. You can find my blog, newsletter, podcast, videos, and webinar series. All of these are free, and they're all designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization, your team, and, of course, yourself. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. You've been listening to the iMatter Podcast. To subscribe, read the show notes, or leave your comments, visit imatterpodcast.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike. Thank you.